Podcast would carry me away. But while talking to Squeak Nick and Michelle get a word in Edgeways, record over a bottle of rum on a darker Southampton Bay. To South, that is what we're talking about. To South, saddle up my microphone, get deep in Baker Bone. South by Southeast. Hello and welcome to Due South by Southeast. I am Detective Squee, and with me, as always, is uh, well, not Mountain Michelle this week, but I've certainly got with me Dottie Baker. So, uh, this is going to be one of our Mountie Moment weeks. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of a technical snafu near the beginning of this recording, so we lost the first 10 minutes of it. But this week, we've got Canadian actor Jeremy Raddock on the show. That name may not mean something to everyone, but uh, let me tell you. He was in the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie, uh, which means a lot to me because I'm a big Doctor Who guy, and I've had him on my other podcast talking about that. He's been on an episode of The X-Files and a few other shows over the years, but one thing which uh, many people outside of Canada might not know uh, is he was on a cult show called The Odyssey, which uh, was a favourite of a certain generation of people, as it's been explained to me. And so I thought it would be fun to have him on, have him talk about The Odyssey, and then have him talk about uh, his top 10 Canadians, as we do with our Canadian guests. So we did that. The only thing was that uh, I didn't know about the Odyssey, so I happened to mention this to one of our listeners, Capergirl Mel Walker, at uh, Capergirl Mel on uh, Twitter. You can also find her on Facebook. I, I happened to mention that he was coming on the show, and she said, Oh, cool, I love the Odyssey. He was fractal, that's amazing, which uh, didn't mean a lot to me at the time. I've now watched the first couple of episodes of the Odyssey. I haven't got up to when Jeremy Raddick comes in about six or seven episodes in. But she gave me some questions to ask him. And uh, as we go into it, he's talking, telling stories about uh, wacky events and wacky things that happened on the set, which is one of Mel's questions which she gave me. But the first question which he answered, I'll just very quickly cover. He talked about the show. He said that it was about a child who uh, is climbing up into a treehouse to get back a spyglass-style telescope, which some bullies have nicked from him. And as he goes to leave with the telescope, he falls down from the treehouse and ends up going into a coma. He then awakes to find himself in this coma world where uh, kids rule the land. And it's this uh, brilliant, just like Mad Max meets Bugsy Malone meets The X-Files meets Eerie Indiana from everything I can put together about this show. Sounds absolutely fantastic. So I'd already asked him about the treehouse as per Mel's instructions. And apparently it was like the TARDIS, so it like uh, looked small from the outside, but when he got onto that set, it was actually surprisingly big. But he didn't work on that set very much. So that's the only question really you've missed, uh, so I apologise that that isn't in here. But now we're going to join the conversation as he tells us about, uh, first of all, something with the director, then about working with Ryan Reynolds, who was on The Odyssey. 
So that's really cool. So please enjoy this week's show. Um, one scene, I had to do a long speech um, explaining how the scientific method worked. And, uh, and, and it was organized around three ideas, the synthesis, hypothesis, and antithesis. And so I had to keep saying those three words and break them down and explain them. And uh, the director of the episode uh, was Steve Scaney, who was a really who directed me in a bunch of TV shows over the years. And he turned to me and he goes, "Jar, if you can say this all the way through without making a mistake, we'll we'll buy you a car." I don't think he was serious, but it still it was pretty funny because the speech was such a tongue twister. And I went through and did it, and I almost got to the very end, and I tripped over one word. And Skinny was just like, well, we can't afford to buy you a car, so we're really glad that you screwed that up on the first take. So that was one one time. The other story that I have is about Ryan Reynolds, because we were doing a courtroom scene, and we were all young. And uh, so, do you, do you know, I don't know if they do this in England. They probably, I don't know if they say it the same way, but in, in some courts in Canada and the United States, when the judge calls the court to order, the bailiff will say, oye, 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 um, which is sort of a way of almost saying, hear ye, hear ye. It's like a, it's like a corruption over time. So yeah, I know like the Supreme, yeah, the Supreme Court of the United States, they say, oye, 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 and so on and so forth. So that was in the script and Ryan was playing the judge. So he was, you know, going to say it. And um, <laughs> we're filming it on the day. And I guess he had no idea what Oye 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 was and he just read it in the script phonetically so he he hangs the gavel and he goes oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah courts in session and we stopped and just the, I remember it was me and another actor named Mark Hildreth who we were pretty tight with Ryan at the time we just started laughing and we just it's oh yeah oh yeah and he was just like I don't know what the hell you're talking so that was the time where we did it but you know when you're a kid and you're on the set, like I always felt like, you know, people are going to be nervous about working with you anyways, because you're a kid and, and you know, the, the old adage, don't work with kids or dogs. Yeah. Um, and so I always maintained that no, no set was ever going to get slowed down because of me. So I always put that kind of weird pressure on myself to try and not be the loose wheel. But, you know, we had screw ups all the time, you know, mostly around like any kissing that had to go on or any of that stuff that usually tended to to bring up the giggles in a pretty pretty funny way and i i can just picture ryan doing that as well like in in his deadpool kind of voice yeah like, oh, 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 oh yeah oh yeah then. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had session. that even then actually it was pretty funny <laughs> you you did actually pretty good ryan there when you were doing that well he's a pretty he's a pretty distinctive guy and you know what like he is uh you know genuinely he was genuinely as funny uh, as he as he is now at that point so I don't know if that means that his sense of humor hasn't changed since he was 16 or if it's just gotten sharper. But uh, either way, he was he was fun to work with. That's for sure. Oh, that's great. And uh, Mel goes on to ask, if you could be on any Canadian TV series, current or past, what would it be and why? Ha. Ah, uh, any Canadian TV series, present or past. You know, I never got to do... Um, uh, I never got to do any of the Da Vinci's Inquest series. Da Vinci's Inquest, I don't know if you know about it, but it was a no. it was a gritty a gritty drama uh, based on the real life Vancouver coroner who eventually became a politician and a senator in Canada. But he was um, Vancouver had you know extreme in the late '90s and and still to this day had a very difficult 
drug problem uh, with uh, you know and it, you know and it had a serial killer operating at the time and it was just um there it was a dark time with income inequality and and not you know effectively you know treating our homeless and our uh, at risk population very well and he was the coroner and he sort of got involved with um, you know it became basically like a crime show drama you know kind of I'm trying to explain think of like what you would closely identify with but it did remind me of Cracker with with Robbie Coltrane where he was a flawed you know brilliant sort of character who was sort of solving crimes out of his wheelhouse but also dealing with social issues and um, and that was a great show. It had two shows, Da Vinci's Inquest and then Da Vinci's City Hall, where the character eventually got into politics. Uh, and there was another show made by the same people called Intelligence, which was really good. And I auditioned for all of those a couple times and never quite landed a gig. So that would have been a show that would have been really fun. And, then, of course, the other one that everybody would always want to be on is The Beachcombers, because that was on for about um, 809 years uh, in Canadian television. So that always would have been fun to be on. I got to work with some of the people, and I knew some of the people from that cast, Robert Clothier and, and uh, Bruno Jussi, and uh, they were just, uh, just a, you know, kind of legends, and it would have always been fun to, to, to do something with them. So those are probably the two, the Da Vinci stuff and, and the Beachcombers would have been great. That sounds great. And, uh, well, before we get on to the next question, uh, one thing I always ask my guests is, uh, you've kind of already answered this to me before we, we spoke, but uh, what are your right. uh, remembrances of Due South? Uh, I remember it very well. I remember um, I, I've probably seen a couple episodes. I w- you know, when the time it was on, I was working a lot in film and TV. So when you work a lot, you actually don't get to watch. There's stuff I've done that I've still to this day never even seen because you don't get to watch a lot because you work so much. But um, yeah, I remember it. It was I remember uh, uh, the dog was named Diefenbaker. Is yep, that right? Yep. Yeah, named Diefen after Chief. the. I think one of the first prime ministers of Canada, or the first, possibly. No, not the first. But uh, he was in the 20th century. Uh, Diefenbaker was around the same time as JFK in the United oh, States, okay. so 1960. Um, but he was called Deef the Chief. He was not as warm or as friendly as a dog. I will let you know that. <laughs> but um, was there a reason yeah, why he was like a famed uh, prime minister, particularly? I, I think or just... it was. Um, well, there were a few things that he did. I mean, I don't, oh God, I couldn't really go into all of it, but he, um, yeah, he was just in that era of growing awareness and television and, you know, him and Lester Pearson and, um, you know, and those, those, and Trudeau, of course, after that, those guys were really sort of in the era of growing knowledge, you know, and, and, you know, the cold war and all, I think they just have a greater sense of the consciousness than the ones that came before. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember that. I remember they replaced the main cop midway, like yeah, the, the, police, they had a second the Ray. American cop. Yeah. And I liked them both. I'd seen a couple episodes. I thought they were good. And, um, I remember Gordon Pinsent was on it a lot and he's a Canadian actor that I like. Yeah. He played, yeah. um, uh, D- uh Baker. He played, uh, Benton's dad. Right. That's right. And yeah, and I thought the show was, it was great. I thought it was charming and funny, but also uh, exciting. I thought it didn't look Canadian. There's a lot of shows out there. Can- Canadian shows sometimes have a very specific look. And then it, it looked like an American show, which probably explains why it was so successful, because it had that uh, slightly different vibe to it. I, I liked it. I just never had the time. You know, this was in pre-DVD binge-watching days, so you literally had to watch, you know, like watch it on the night it was on or set up your VCR Oh God, we're so old. 
you know, to, to catch it. So if, if you were, you know, busy and stuff like that, and it just never became a huge thing. But I certainly remember uh, Paul Gross making an impression and becoming, you know, uh, basically the Canadian TV star of his of his time with that show. So I, I think the, the wonderful thing about it is, and the same thing I got watching Broomman recently was that it's kind of this thing whereby it's it's almost like Canadians on their TV shows, I think, we're, you know, at their best. They say it's like, oh, oh, you're, you're taking the mickey out of our culture and us, are you? No, this is how you take the, the mickey out of us. And <laughs> Canadians yeah. are so good at lampooning themselves. It, it's very it's, true. But, but also kind of paying respect to candor at the same time. It's very well done that way. Yeah, I mean, like. I always say, I mean, I think it was Robin Williams who said, like, living in Canada is like living above a nightclub, <laughs> you know, and it's like it changes who you are when you have this incredibly boisterous, obnoxious neighbor to the south who, you know, steals all the thunder and, you know, that sort of stuff. It makes and, you know, and also we have the British influence as well. And I think that really influences our sense of humor a lot where we're incredibly proud of the things that we see as our our accomplishments and achievements but we don't take ourselves too seriously ever and you know i i think there's a nice like do south is kind of a show that kind of exemplifies that we aren't really insecure about the things that are slightly silly about our culture or you know can be sent up like we're not insecure you know we would never be you know uptight about that we're just like yeah that's right we're gonna we're gonna you know make fun of that a little bit and we're gonna we're gonna be okay with it and that's do south's a really good example of that kind of aspect of canadian identity where it's like yeah we're great we're awesome we're incredible we're not above being made fun of but you know at all so if anybody's gonna do it it's gonna be us you know yes totally and and i asked that uh, by way of uh, going on to mel's uh, final question which is if you made a guest appearance on do south what would your character be and what would the episode plot be so we're we're telling well, your writer now. Okay, here's the thing. I would play when I was on when I guested on shows as a day player. Invariably, I was kind of like an ex, an expository tool. So I'm gonna guess that if they ever needed uh, any technical support, like a hacker or a lab guy who was gonna give them information and stuff like that. That's who I'd be. And I think, you know, if, if I had a part of significance, I would wind up being the crook that they were looking for and trying to uh, steer them wrong, maybe. You know, like a dirty oh. lab tech, a corrupt lab tech. That that would definitely be my my wheelhouse. <laughs> you know, techno babble and sort of weaseliness. That that's that would be my wheelhouse right there. Oh, I think that'd be it. Like, I, I can see the episode now as well. <laughs> like the lab well, tech working undercover and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Let's call Paul Gross and we'll we'll do another season. Let's go. Look, I'm I'm pitching for that already, so you know you don't you don't <laughs> need to tell me twice about that. <laughs> they always kind of talked about doing a TV movie because uh, the way they ended it was uh, him going off on a sled in Canada with uh, the second Ray. Uh, right. But they never kind of got around to doing it, so I'd still want to see that TV movie. Right. Well, you know they should do it. It's good. And along the way, they'll bump into a uh, dirty lab tech who's, who's steering them yeah. about. <laughs> it all ties together perfectly. Yeah, perfect. I mean, you know, let's do it. And it needs to be uh, it needs to be updated for the for the twenty first century, anyways. So there you go. 
Although, I, you know, I still want the original Ray to guest appear and him still to be in those loud uh, Hawaiian kind of... Hawaiian shirts. Hawaiian shirts, but kind of 90 shirts that he'd wear. Yeah, God, what was that guy's name? Uh, was it David... Oh, David Marciano. Marci- yeah, there you go. And and then Callum Keith Rennie was, uh, was the second... Uh, he was Stanley, whatever his name was. Stanley but, uh, Ray... Uh... Oh god, I can't remember his because he was he was play, he was undercover as Ray Vecchio, right? Kowalski was his actual surname. Yeah, no, he Callum Keith Rennie too is great. He's he's a really he's he's a great actor. I really like him. So I'd be up for that. That'd be fun. Awesome. Well, we're now going to get into the part where we've asked you to do a bit of homework for us. So yeah. uh, we want you to bring us your top ten Canadians of all time. Is there was there any kind of like uh, vision behind this, or were you just trying to think of ten Canadians you really respected? Well, first of all, I immediately said I cannot mention Pierre Trudeau um, because someone else is going to mention him. I don't know if you've done this list yet. Um, and I wanted to pick ones that I thought really were like my favorites, but alternated between like sort of ones I like for entertainment purposes and ones that I found sort of inspiring as Canadians. Does that sound good? I, I mean, I love this. I, I love how okay. seriously people take this. Because to, to me, this is a fun little show. I kind of love doing it. But when people take it seriously, this list, people don't just jot down 10 Canadians. They, no. they kind of really think, of like, especially the kind of Canadian guests, <laughs> like really yeah. think about yeah, it. Yeah. And I, I respect that. People, yeah, because I think people, you know, when when people, you know, you look online or something for 10 great Canadians – uh, invariably people say things like, uh, well, Pierre Trudeau is always on that, but, uh, but also like they say things like, uh, you know, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling. And I'm like, okay, but you know, we do things other than, than that too. Like, you know, there are other people that we could bring up. So, uh, so anyways, I'm going to bring up a few right now. Well, that's and, good. Uh, cause, cause if we've proved anything, alternate. me and Michelle, my guest, uh, you're my co-host, sorry for the, uh, main show. Like the one thing we proved with our lists is that we need help knowing Canadians. We obviously don't know enough. Like our list was totally just celebrities we knew about. That was about it. Awesome. So awesome. Um, well, this will be this will yeah. be both celebrities you know about and Canadians you may not know about. So that's excellent. So ed- educate go. away, sir. All right. So my number ten is um, is a personal choice, and that's Donald Sutherland, the actor. And nice. um, I grew up, you know, on you know watching him and uh, just love every performance that he gives, even in things that are terrible, because he's always very strange. Um, but I loved, uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, and or a teen anyways, and really becoming a serious actor, and then watching things like MASH and Clute and Don't Look Now and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, you know, some of his great performances in those films. That was a big inspiration to me and, and also proof that you can, you know, make it as an actor in 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 a serious way. We have lots of Canadians who are very funny. Some of them are going to be on this list. Um, but, uh, he made it, you know, not being necessarily a comic actor, um, but being an, a character actor, a leading man in an era where you had to be exceptional in the seventies and, um, just really always did some interesting parts. So, you know, I, I, he was a bit of an inspiration for me and in, in the way he took chances. So I love that about him. And he still remains, you know, a, a Canadian through and through. So that's always uh, inspir- inspiring, especially as an actor. Well, yeah, one uh, next... you, well just yeah, to, on, on the Donald Sutherland of it, uh, the, 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 the thing for me which kind of shows how much he treats 
the profession seriously, no matter what the film is, is him and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where he right. plays the original Watcher there. And I yeah. love the fact that there's this really goofy movie happening around him. It sounds like there was loads of problems getting that film done for Joss Whedon. But he is yeah. just pitching it completely straight. It's that thing of like when you get, um, oh God, uh, Michael Caine in The Muppets Christmas Carol. All this right. craziness is happening around him, but he's just playing it straight down the middle. And that's what Donald Sutherland does there. And it shows he's yeah. not kind of snobby about genres or anything as well. He just wants to go and give a good performance in whatever he's doing. Yeah, and he does that thing, like, um, just to nerd out about Doctor Who for a slight second, he does the same thing that I like about Patrick Troughton, which is, no matter what's going on in the piece that he's working in, he plays the stakes, you know, right where they need to be to be interesting and to have weight. You know, and sometimes it comes off as like, why are you doing this movie? Like, he does have a bit of the Michael Caineism of, you know, I've never seen Jaws the Revenge, but I've seen the house that it bought me. He does have a, you know, Sutherland does have that, you know, there are things he's done where you're like, what is this all about? Um, but even it also means that sometimes he chooses things that are just bizarre. I think he plays Casanova for Fellini and it's a, such a weird, weird movie, you know, and um, he's great in it, you know, and, and I, you know, I would say that it's not necessarily, a, you know, a successful uh, movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it is something that, you know, once you see it, you won't, you won't forget it. So that's what I love about him. He's just like, he can do Buffy the Vampire Slayer and also do Fellini's Casanova. And that's in the same career. Uh, and and you you never get the impression on any of the more lighthearted movies he's done that he's phoning it in at all, which you do get some, with some actors. He just really sure. he acts his best in no matter what he's doing, which is amazing. Yeah, exactly. And he and he brings himself to it too, right? So it's yeah. always like it's always going to be his. Like I, I I'm not a huge fan of of uh, the movie JFK, but I am a huge fan of his scene because he just comes in and lays down like a page and a half like 10 minutes of just exposition at moment after moment and he knows that i better be interesting because otherwise people are going to fall asleep and he does it right and that that's a hard job it's a hard thing to do to come into a movie and just uh lay it down like that uh he did a, a movie for hbo called citizen x which i really love his performance in that so uh check that out if you can find it anywhere online no definitely uh so yeah. your next choice sir Okay, so my next choice is, is more in the educational vein. Um, when I uh, sort of retired from acting uh, a few years ago, I, I started working in organized labor, uh, the union movement and the labor movement in, in Canada. And so I learned a lot about uh, Canadians who are part of the labor movement. So um, the woman I'm going to bring up, her name is Madeleine Parron. Um, she's French-Canadian. And uh, she was, you know, a, a labor activist in uh in in eastern canada uh in toronto and montreal throughout most of the 20th century i don't know if anybody's ever brought her up before but no uh, no no yeah so she was um she basically in the in the 1940s uh after she graduated from mcgill she began working in the labor movement and specifically in the textile industry in quebec and there were female workers working in the textile industry at that time it was predominantly female most of them uh were paid extremely low wages. They worked 50 plus hour weeks. Some were only 14 years old. And, um, and she and her partner, Kent Rowley, uh, basically organized a, a successful strike for better contracts in 1946 in Montreal. She was only 28. 
Uh, and at that point, the, the premier of Quebec, uh, the premier is like the, the provincial government leader uh, in Quebec, uh, was named Maurice Duplessis, and he hated unions. Uh, so he wound up basically putting the full letter of the law against her. He saw her as a threat. She was arrested for seditious conspiracy. Um, so basically labeled like a dangerous traitor and arrested five times in all. Uh, in 1952, she established a national union. And then in 69, she founded the Confederation of Canadian Unions. Uh, and she is just, you know, she was labeled a communist, but she just never stopped fighting for women, for aboriginal rights. There's a great story of her getting involved. There was a, this blows my mind, there was a, a textile company, a knitting factory in uh, Ontario, I think. And I can't remember its name. I want to say it's called Puritex. I can't remember exactly its name. But um, the guy installed cameras over every inch of the factory, including pointing at the door to the women's bathroom. Um, and when the men's shift would come on, because they had segregated shifts at this time in the 70s, he turned all the cameras off because he wasn't interested in watching them. But he didn't trust the women. He didn't like the women. So he con- consistently filmed them. And so she was, oh, you know. That sounds so yeah, creepy it, as well. Yeah, it just it was just very Orwellian. I don't think it was for any purient, like, sexy, creepy weirdness. I think it was more about, like, he just thought that women couldn't be trusted and that they were stealing from him, and so he had to watch them. So, you know, that those were the type of people that she fought for, and she fought for them her whole life. And um, in 83, she retired from the labor movement, but she continued to work for women and aboriginal rights until she died in, in 2012 at 93. So she's someone that is just inspiring and and you know wasn't afraid to to take the consequences of that and you know when i worked in labor that was someone that you just kind of kept in mind and went okay you know that's that's why you do what we do Um, and some people don't like labor unions for whatever reasons but you know um it's important to remember that things like you know worker safety regulations and and fair pay and child labor laws, those all came about from labor unions, and, and she was one of the people who did that. So she always has inspired me in that sense. Yeah, and at, at a time when uh, in America, you know, no what, how you feel politically, unions certainly are getting less power at the moment, and, you know, there's yeah. certain things happening, shall we say. Uh, how, how is it faring in Canada now that she's not on the scene? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's still, the labor movement is still... Uh, it's still got its its proponents for sure, and there's still people obviously that are extremely involved um, on the left and in a progressive movement. I think that there's no question that um, people have a darker, dimmer view of the labor movement. It's been successfully sort of um, demonized for 20 or 30 years by its opponents. So, you know, I think that there is a, a question of public support, and and also as well, I think. You know, uh, the labor movement, you know, has had its 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 problems. You know, it's it's an organization made up of people. So like any other organization or movement made up of people, it's got its angels and it's got its demons. And I just think we need to remember what the angels stood for uh, and maybe try to, you know, minimize the impact of the demons. And as long as we, you know, you can do that, um, it's pretty easy to show to show why people like Madeleine Perron uh, are only a benefit to this country and not someone that's looking to hurt anybody. So that's just the way I feel about it. No, no, that's a, a, a heroic pick there, I feel. Yeah. I yeah, yeah. For them. No, I that's like awesome. Yeah. Um, the next one is fun. It's the cast of SCTV. 
Uh, <laughs> the entire cast is being the inducted. Entire cast. Well, <laughs> fair yeah, enough. I, you know, I've got a couple groups just because I can't really pick one person from SCTV. But when I was a kid, that show was on everywhere. And, yeah, I, I can't talk. I put the bare naked ladies in as one pick, so that's fine. Okay, so there you go. Um, yeah. And SCTV was unbelievably funny. It was just brilliant. I don't know. Did it? It, it must have gone to England at some point. I don't no. know how familiar you are with it. Um, but I've, I've heard the Andy. name before, but yeah, I, I, we, we didn't get that over here. Oh man, it was so great. Look it up because um, it basically was in the 70s and, and, and 80s and the cast was John Candy, uh, Eugene Levy, Dave Thomas, Rick Moranis, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, um, Joe Flaherty. And then they added other people. Martin Short was on it later on. Um, it was just an incredible incredible cast the idea was so basically any any of the stars of films i watched in the 90s it sounds like which came from canada (laughs) was in that yeah Yeah. very true and um it was formed out of second city toronto Uh, second city is sort of a legendary improv comedy group in america and in uh toronto i think it's in chicago in uh, in in the united states uh and it's spawned a ton of people uh the the chicago one and the toronto one they were looking to do a television show in the wake of saturday night live but instead of being just a sketch comedy show without a structure like saturday night live is um sctv was centered around a, a kind of you know bargain basement television station in a small town called Mellonville, and so you got parodies of television and movies from what was broadcast from the SCTV station, but you also had recurring characters with their own storylines who ran the station, like uh, Guy Caballero, who was the station manager, or, or at least the owner, who was this sort of corrupt guy who was always in a wheelchair but could actually walk. Um, and you had the mayor, Tommy Shanks, which was played by John Candy, who always cracked me up because he would do these fireside chats, and there would be like a stuffed dog next to him when he did these fireside chats, <laughs> and he would take... He would take a, he would take like handfuls of kibble and just throw them at the dog's mouth, you know, and they would just like rebound, and he'd be like, "That's a good boy." Like he didn't, you know, it was just great. It was just a hysterical. That that sounds perfectly John Candy. Yeah, it was yeah. unbelievably funny, and it just uh, so inventive. And they did, you know, filmed sketches and and uh, yeah, just so many memorable characters. Uh, that's where Ed Grimley, Martin Short's famous character, Ed Grimley, came from. And uh, is that the interview guy? Amazing. No, that's uh, Jiminy Glick, but uh, oh, yeah. Ed Grimley was the nerd with like the the kind of weird hair. And anyways, it was yeah, it was just a, a kind of hallmark of of Canadian comedy and sort of you know just every kid of my age grew up watching SCTV and just loved it and can name all the characters and yeah, Bob and Doug McKenzie came from that, which are the famous Canadian you know parody characters or popularized Take Off Your Hoser and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah, we loved we loved those guys. Wow, it sounds like uh, quite the breeding ground for talent. It seems like that uh, again. I've heard the name before, and it sounds like it's kind of the same sort of uh, breeding ground for talent that uh, Saturday Night Live was in America. Yeah, very much yeah. so. And in fact, you know, um, Martin Short left SCTV to go to Saturday Night Live. I think Catherine O'Hara, who's gone on to do a bunch of the Christopher Guest improv movies, she went to Saturday Night Live for a little while. Uh, and Harold Ramis was the head writer on the show. Uh, for the first couple of years and before leaving to go do movies. So he's also on the show uh, in the first couple of years. So it was just, you know, just terrific comedy. And it's a little silly now. It's a little dated now. But 
you can't get, you know, just so inventive in terms of their ongoing sketches, which I really loved about it. Oh, terrific. And uh, your next pick, sir? My next pick is a, an Aboriginal leader named Harold Cardinal. Um, so he has a specific place in Canadian history in the 1960s and 70s and, and onwards. Uh, there was uh, Pierre Trudeau had this idea of what we called what he called the Just Society. It was his banner for all his reforms that he wanted to do with his government in the 60s, uh, multiculturalism and standing up for civil rights. Had a bit of a problem, though, because at that time and even, you know, still to this day, uh, the First Nations people, what, what used to be called uh, the Indians in our country, weren't treated very well at all if they were recognized for anything. Uh, a country where problem. Indians weren't treated well. You, you surprise me, sir. <laughs> I know. It blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, and so he had what happened was, is that his minister for Indian affairs, who was Jean Chrétien, who eventually became prime minister himself, uh, wrote this thing called the White Paper. And what the White Paper was designed to do was dismantle uh, the special legal status and protections that Aboriginal peoples had with the government. So treaties and... (laughs) It's someone in the nose calling it the white paper as well. (laughs) Exactly, right? Exactly. Like, couldn't come up with a better name than the white paper? You're full on just saying, no, it's white. We're white people. Um, And so their idea, I think, honestly, was kind of to say everyone should be the same. And what Harold Cardinal wrote a book called The Unjust Society, which is an amazing book, uh, basically saying that you know, the white paper was extermination through cultural assimilation. So, you know, if it's just, why, if this is a just society, why was it discriminating against Aboriginal peoples in the first place? And he was the first one to kind of force a lot of people like me, you know, the white people of Canada at that time to not just think of Indians as these people on reservations that were drunk all the time that we didn't have anything to do with, but to actually confront how we've treated them as a society and what's important. So, you know, he, um, through that book, The Unjust Society, and, a, and another book, uh, document he wrote that has become known as The Red Paper, um, he wanted to point out that we can, uh, you know, Aboriginal people can be part of the modern culture without losing their treaties, without losing their traditions, without losing the things that make them distinct and and you know, as important a part of Canadian culture as the European side. And, you know, he did that because his book was also satirical and it was funny and it was passionate. And, you know, he was uh, he was someone that I think more Canadians should read because it really does open your eyes and make you consider things uh, from a different way and challenge some of your views if you're a white person in Canada uh, that you may have about Aboriginal peoples. So. He's always, I read him when I was in my 20s, and it really did change, you know, a lot of my assumptions. So he's someone that when people talk about great Canadians, they don't necessarily mention Harold Cardinal, but I like to bring him up because, you know, of what he added. And now to this day, you know, Aboriginal people are always at the table, who are always a significant voice, or at least, um, you know, considered to be a a significant voice. I think they would argue about how much uh, consideration they're given. Um, but without someone like Harold Cardinal, uh, I don't think they'd even have the voice that they have now. So, you know, I think he did a great service to Canadians. Not everyone would agree to me, agree with me on that one, but uh, I think he's super important for sure. Yeah, and I, I kind of love the fact that not only is it a fantastic story of someone kind of fighting for rights on a very serious level, but also it sounds almost comic book level. It's like the just society, the unjust society. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you I mean, could totally sell yeah. this as a great movie. 
Yeah, and he did the. He had this thing called. Uh, he called it the buckskin curtain. You know, he wanted to take the buckskin curtain down, referencing you know that Indians always tradition in, in a lot of people's estimations wore buckskin and you know did rain dances and things like that. He wanted to say, no, no, we need to take that down. You need to see us as we are and not as you know you've sort of dismissed us as being. Um, we need to talk to each other and learn more about each other. Go from there. Jeremy, you need to be writing this up as a movie treatment. I'm serious. This sounds like a great, like this would be a great film. <laughs> this yeah, story. Yeah, he was, he was, a, he was an amazing guy. He died quite young. He was only 60 when he died. Um, but he, he also, uh, the important thing too, when he wrote that, uh, in, in 1969, I believe he was 24 years old. Um, so not a, not a, he wasn't, you know, part of the establishment. He wasn't, you know, this, this, uh, you know, revered figure, he was, he was a young upstart too. So that was, that's another thing that I think is heroic about him, you know, taking on the world, the most popular prime minister in some time and just doing it fearlessly. It was great. Okay. No one's saying the film's got a happy ending, but I still think it no. could work. No, it's true. It's true. <laughs> you should be a superhero. The happy ending is the, the civil rights bit. Not, not so much for him though. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, right. so are my we next, on five now six uh this is six so six. my next view well this will be short because there's not much to say about this but uh, my next view is a personal choice uh i love the band arcade fire which is from yep. canada and um you know there's they're some of my favorite canadians on there really inventive creative uh some people may roll their eyes or they're tired of them or whatever but uh but i still love them and we just saw them here in kansas city a few months back so you know, still living off the buzz on that. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're a great mixture. Also, also they're a mixture of Canadians and Americans, uh, but we still outnumber the Americans in the band. So, uh, <laughs> so, so the American, so it has to be the Canadian part of Arcade Fire gets on your list. <laughs> yes. Yes. The Canadian part only. We were not, from- I don't mind you having multiples in one pick, but you're not carrying Americans onto this list. It, it seems like no. cheating. Yeah, exactly. No, just Canadian, just the Canadian section. That's all we're say. So with, with the band, so what, what are some of your favorite hits? Um, well, I yeah, I, they did a, a great album called The Suburbs, which is uh, an amazing album. Uh, it's kind of a concept album talking about, you know, suburban life. And uh, that's a great song. There's um, my favorite song is probably Powers Out, which is uh, from uh, uh, Funeral. I might have just screwed up the name of that song. But um it's from their album Funeral, which is their first album. And um, yeah, and I think the Suburbs as a whole album, if you're going to listen to something, just pick a couple songs, any song from that album, and you'll you'll get what they're about. Kind of okay. large, orchestral, anthemic, you know, rock and roll, which is fun. I'd say it's one of those bands where I, I recognize the name, but I don't know any of their stuff. So I might have to, to check out uh, Suburbs then. Yeah, the Suburbs yeah. is great. That was That's probably my favorite album of theirs. Awesome. That's on my recommendations list. There you go. So number five. Number five. Number five is a man named Jack Layton. Uh, he was the head of the NDP, the New Democratic Party in Canada. Um, he was a longtime Toronto politician, a very progressive guy, um, you know, co-founded programs dedicated to environmental causes, fighting violence against women, and then became the head of the NDP uh, in, I think, 2002. Um, and at the time, the NDP is, is the left of center party. It's the party that I support, obviously, if you can guess from my list so far. Um, 
and uh, they're democratic socialists. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, American listeners may be terrified by that, but a democratic socialists are a different thing from communists. Everybody just calm down. Um, and at <laughs> sorry, the time, sorry, Bernie's, Bernie's brought quite a lot of them out of the woodwork of the last election. It's fine. They, they, they exist there in America as well. That's true. Well, I live in Kansas. They don't exist here that much. But, uh, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so you, time, you might be in the wrong part for that. I know, right? I know. I should get to San Francisco and fix that. Um, so at the time, there was in the in the entire House of Commons in Canada, the NDP just had 12 MPs after the 2000 election. And um, Leighton wasn't that popular with the MPs that were sitting at the time. He wasn't that uh, popular with the union bosses who you know are, are among the largest donors to the party. Um, but he handily won, you know, election as leader because he had lived, he'd kind of walked the walk in Toronto for so long as a progressive. And, uh, in the 2004 election, he took the NDP from 12 to 19 seats. And then in the 2006 election, brought him up to 29 and then 2008, 37. And then in 2011, they won 103 seats, um, and went to become the official opposition for the first time in the party's history. And uh, he's an, um, just, you know, he, he did that by two things, I think. One, he took advantage of the ruling party's sort of troubles. Uh, they were dealing with a corruption scandal. But he was really good at compromise. Uh, and I like that in a politician. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to say. But you have to always recognize that you're governing for everybody, not just the people who voted yeah. for you. And um, so one of the things that he did was that the government needed uh, needed his vote, needed his party's vote to stay in power. Um, being part of a parliamentary country, you get what that means. Uh, it means that you can get things in exchange. And so he got yeah. millions and millions of dollars for, for their programs that really benefited uh, a lot of the working and poor people in, in Canada. And um, And so he... I think I admire that the way that he was both inspirational and inspiring to progressives like myself because of his policies, but was able to actually put it into action. And um, right after he won and became the leader of the opposition in 2011, he, he was diagnosed with cancer and unfortunately um, passed away very soon after that. But um, still, a, you know, he's sort of a he created the, the colors for the NDP was orange. Uh, and so he orchestrated what's known as the Orange Crush in 2011, where they they swept in and became the opposition and really changed that party. And that party went from being sort of, you know, the daffy new NDP party on the fringes more often than not to becoming, you know, a viable candidate as the opposition. So, uh, yeah, he's a hero of mine, I guess. And yeah, that's Jeremy, that's just, I, I, I'm loving your list, but could you stop cutting <laughs> off all these positive people yeah. you're bringing into Sorry. my life? You know, <laughs> never heard of them one, before. I have one more sad one after this, but the rest are all fun. Okay? It feels like they're living and dying in the space of five minutes while I'm hearing about them. Like, I know. I'm, like, I'm getting oh, so sounds... pumped up for these people. And then, yeah. This yeah, guy dead. sounds great. And then he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah terrible. Yeah, it's pretty much. Terrible. It's like, oh, why that... can't you just talk about Ryan Gosling? Just talk about <laughs> Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> or even another Ryan you've worked with, Jesus. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I can't mention Ryan Reynolds. Everyone will think he paid me. Yeah. Um, next on my list is Kids in the Hall. Well, uh, I, will, I will just say, though, it, it's kind of really nice that on your list you had someone who's kind of a great compromiser because uh, yeah. I think no matter which country you name in the West at the moment, compromising isn't top of the agenda at the moment for a lot of people. It is, 
It is not. And I think that that's super important. You know, I think that he managed to hold on to the ideals while at the same time working with his enemies or at least his adversaries. And that is that's an important lesson to learn. Some people would criticize him and think he made deals a bit too readily or that he was opportunistic. But I think that's part of of being a leader and being a, and, and governing. Right. I, I just you know, that's just my opinion. I think it's part of it. And if you can stand you stand your ground and refuse to give an inch. Uh, you know, you'll be the loudest guy shouting in the wilderness, you know, and, uh, you know, you got to take your opportunities to lead where you can. That, that, that was inspirational, sir. No, I appreciate that. Oh my goodness. No, that's Not great. Let, let's, um, but yeah, you were saying kids in the hall. I mean, that, that's the a kids great in the pick. Hall. Not only a yeah. fantastic show, but also what everyone from that show went on to do is amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. A... Uh, amazing, amazing artists on that show. Really, uh, competitive comedians who you know fought with each other and worked well together but you know the kids in the hall were you know after sctv you know ended in the early 80s i mean the next big thing is kids in the hall they're sort of like our monty python in a lot of ways yeah um you know in the way that they you know broke the norms and of course they didn't care too much about gender and and you know were very uh, gender or species with some of their female characters that's right. Gender, species, you know, and they certainly didn't care about what norms were. They did whatever comedy they wanted to do. And I mean, like, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about comedy because I, you know, you can't just recreate bits. But, um, you know, just every everything was funny and some of it was weird and some of it didn't even have jokes. You know, it was just sort of meant to be strange. Um, and I got to see them live a couple of times, which was really great. And you know, just such great energy and, and just hilarious. They're just, you know, they, they're still the thing that the Canadian thing that probably makes me laugh the most easily is, and, and sort of boggles my mind the most readily. So, yeah. And the, the amount of uh, times when I see them popping up on all sorts of TV programs from like scrubs, uh, Colbert Report, there was one of them who was a, a guest spot on that. You've got them on, uh, things like, uh, friends, like they, they just, right. they, 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 these people that kind of pop up every now and again, they instantly make everything just more fun. But yeah. uh, even when I was watching that show and I must admit there were some sketches, which I just didn't get at all, but I was right. kind of like, you got how wonderful it was and how wonderfully strange it was that it's like, even if you didn't get it personally, it's like, I, I appreciate that that exists. And I know they're going to go on to do some wonderful things. And they, you know, they, yeah. they're so prolific as writers since they were yeah. doing kids in the hall as well. There's a sketch um, that still makes me laugh. I have no earthly idea why, and it's it's a it's like it's a little vignette that happens throughout an entire episode. And it's Mark McKinney, and he drives up to this house in the middle of some Canadian wasteland, and he opens, gets out on the door, and it's clear like he's like a working man who's going to work. He knocks on the door, and he's like, "Hey, Lopez, it's time to go to work, Lopez," and it's just him calling for Lopez and then it goes and does sketches. And then when it comes back from commercial break, it's back to that guy standing outside the front going Lopez, you know, like the joke is that this guy Lopez is not home, but he thinks he's home. And the guy spends the whole day trying to get Lopez to come out. I don't know why it's funny. I, I don't get why it's like, I couldn't explain to you why, what makes that funny, but it is, it just, it's still a sketch that lives in my head. It just, it's yeah. cracks me up. I'm, I've doesn't got make sim- any sense, but it's just funny. I've got a similarly bizarre one from that show. It's uh, there was someone who was uh, working at reception. This 
girl uses his pen and kind of oh, walks yeah. off with it and he tracks her down to the ends of the earth trying to get hold of this pen. And then the yeah. end of the sketch, he's got this huge head device with his pen attached. So it's like, that's yeah. not happening again. You know, it's, it, it, yeah. My favorite, my favorite part is when he envisions her like stabbing someone <laughs> with the pen and then taking the bloody that. pen and, and cleaning their ear with the pen. Like he has all these fever nightmare dreams about like, <laughs> what are they doing with that pen? And yeah, it just, it's, it's great. They just, took things to such an absurd level all the time that it's hard not to laugh no it's amazing yeah no really great Paul and um I, I forget I'm sorry I'm not very good with the names of the kids in the hall but the guy who's got blonde hair uh there's Scott Thompson who did Buddy who is uh yeah is that I think it might be him which... I think it's Scott Thompson uh they, 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 you know I mentioned the Colbert Report I think right. he was the one where they were doing their coverage of the Winter Olympics in Russia I think it was and okay. uh, there, there was this big thing about like uh, that they weren't allowing gay people into Russia, and you know there was uh, <coughs> right. I, I I think there was it was something to do with kind of uh, gay people not allowed to to go certain places. There was certain kind of uh, there was some kind of gay storyline or story in right. Russia, and so he went over there playing this super gay character and just what was he so. Playing? I'm sure he was playing Buddy who is his uh, Scott Thompson is gay and he has this famous character buddy uh, who who does monologues for the show. And yeah, if he was playing buddy, that would have been genius. I didn't see that, but I would like to. I think so. It was in this big, like uh, your Russian hat. And uh, I mean, it was just so over the top and ridiculous and yeah. so obvious that he was playing this uh, gay character, uh, oh, yeah. but he, but he was never kind of mentioning it and he was doing it like he was covering how disgusting it was. These gay people over here, you know, while yeah. he's talking to all these Russians, he could have got <laughs> yeah. killed. I mean, oh yeah. I love oh, that yeah. kind of bravery in doing that kind of comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he created Buddy. I mean, the other thing, too, is that Scott Thompson, Buddy was a character he created outside of Kids in the Hall and brought into the troupe. But, like, right. he created that character in the midst of the 80s when AIDS was huge and, and you know, gay people were sort of, uh, you know, running for their lives in a way uh, and were seen as the boogeyman or, you know, plague carriers. And, and here was this character that was like, no, I'm gay and i am flamboyant and i live my life exactly the way i am and you know i think that was really important as well as being hugely funny you know and um yeah i i, I love yeah, i love i love their bravery in that sense yeah you see i mean i probably did see that character then on kids in the hall because like kids in the hall was when uh i was quite young and it didn't get repeated over here so right. I'm, I'm working from my memory here so i probably did see the character at the time but i didn't put it together that he was playing that character on Again, Colbert, yeah. but oh, yeah. it's just it was so funny <laughs> and so brave, as I say. Just how he didn't get killed was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd go to Russia just as me, let alone as some. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. It seems like a scary place right now in any eventuality. So, yeah, I think it was a rare time when Colbert, after they'd done their bit, he kind of went on camera later and said, "It's like, yeah, I want to thank him for doing that because he just could have got murdered." You know. <laughs> yeah. I know. He, he doesn't, oh, yeah, you know, he didn't often um, tip the wink to the character, but he did on right, that occasion. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, cool. So, uh, yeah, your next pick. All right. Next pick is, uh, is unfortunately, it's going to have a sad ending. I'm just prepping you right now, okay? okay. Is, uh, is, Terry, is Terry Fox. Um, now, has anyone talked about Terry Fox on the, on the show before? I don't think so, but the name rings a bell. Okay. So Terry Fox uh, was a young man uh, from BC, British Columbia, where I grew up. Uh, he was an avid athlete. He played 
soccer and rugby and baseball and and he became a cross country runner um, or long distance runner. I think you guys call it in, in the UK. And in 1977, he was diagnosed with cancer and his particular kind of cancer led to his right leg being amputated. And he went through chemo. He was given a 50% chance. And, and what he was astounded by was how little uh, research and, and, and money was going into cancer. Uh, and so he, was angered by that. He was an angry guy. He wasn't just a saint, but he was also a guy who got angry pretty easily. And he decided that he had to do something about it. So his idea was he was going to run the length of Canada uh, to raise awareness. He wanted to raise a million or a dollar for every person in Canada. And there was 24 million people in Canada at that time. And so he selected his best prosthetic leg and um in april of 1980 he started in st john's newfoundland he dipped his toe in the atlantic and started running and uh for anybody in europe who doesn't know canada is the second largest country in terms of area on earth it's gigantic and most of it is frankly inhospitable uh and so he you know he went running it was april but he still encountered gale force winds and heavy rains and snowstorms and then Later on into his run, intense heat, um, he suffered shin splints. He developed cysts on his leg that had been amputated um, and, you know, basically wouldn't stop. He was forced to take a couple rest days. But other than that, he ran every day. Um, but unfortunately, on uh, 143 days into his run, uh, just outside Thunder Bay, Ontario, he was forced to stop because his cancer had returned and spread to his lungs. He was very sick. And... Um, at that point he had run 5,373 kilometers and had raised a million dollars. Um, but he had to stop. So a week after his run ended, uh, they did a telethon on television where they raised another 10 and a half million. And then, um, by April, $23 million had been raised. That's about a year after he started the run. So he did wind up raising almost a dollar for every person in Canada at the time. And, you know, unfortunately, he passed away in 1981, just uh, just shortly after, you know, after completing his or stopping his run. Um, but the important thing about Terry Fox and the reason why he is like a gigantic hero in Canada uh, is because he really did raise awareness about cancer and about the lack of uh, the lack of funding and research. In it. it over six hundred and fifty million dollars has been raised in his name since then. And he's sort of the face of, you know, a growing eagerness to finally do something about this disease that affects so many. And the truth, the truth of the fact of the matter is that people today probably wouldn't die of the cancer that Terry Fox died from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, he, he really did change the world. He's one of those few people that with very little resources and nothing more than just sheer determination, uh, did change the world and did, did, do things that saved lives. I mean, it's hard to say how many people's lives he saved, but probably millions. And uh, he continues, Terry Fox runs continue around the world to this day. So he is, you know, genuinely a gigantic hero in Canada. And, you know, things are named after him and schools and whatnot. And uh, he's just someone that, you know, especially for me from coming from British Columbia, that has always been in the public consciousness and sort of a symbol of kind of what's best about Canada. And I love the fact too, that he's also, you know, he fought with people. He was angry, you know, his supporters who helped, you know, his support staff on the, 
on the run, you know, he sometimes would get angry with them, you know, obviously because he was in a lot of discomfort. Um, he got angry when the press didn't represent, you know, his intentions as well as they could have, uh, or when he was distracted away from the run by press events and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he was a real person with, with, uh, not just this sainted figure, um, and, you know, an ordinary guy. And I think that's the thing that makes him even more extraordinary. If you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's 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 a yeah. fantastic story. It's another one which I'm waiting to see the movie of. This this is <laughs> there is a movie of it actually. There uh, is a yeah, movie there has it. to have been. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Oh uh, yeah, there is a movie of it. It's pretty good. It's it's kind of from the point of view of his, of his best friend who helped him. Uh, I think Sean Ashmore from the X Men movies, who plays Iceman in the X Men movies, is uh, his buddy in that. I can't remember who plays Terry Fox. Maybe Sean Ashmore does play Terry Fox. I could be getting that wrong, but um, he uh, yeah, he's he's someone that is as close as you can get to kind of a uniformly accepted Canadian hero. Uh, and I like that, uh, you know, a Canadian hero is, is a hero not for, you know, something militaristic or, you know, associated with violence, but associated with doing something to help heal people and, and, you know, sacrifice. That's, that's an interesting, an interesting thing. That's great. And what's the name of the yeah. movie? Let's, uh, let me look that up. Terry Fox movie. Hang on. But that's uh, yeah, yeah. That's definitely a, a a worthy induction to top ten, I think. Um. Well, there is two from the looks of it. There's a Terry Ooh. Fox movie from 1983 called The Terry Fox Story, which I have never seen. But I, yeah, I've never seen. And there's uh, the movie I've seen is just called Terry. And it's from 2005, and it is with, oh yeah, Sean Ashmore from the X-Men movie does play Terry Fox. Uh, and um, yeah, and it's, uh, that's the movie, Those there's other people in it I bet you'd recognize, you might even recognize them from Due South, I bet. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's, it was written by Dennis Foon, who I am pretty sure wrote for The Odyssey. Ah, so it all links in. Yeah. I think so. I think he did write for the Odyssey. Like, for the great size of Canada, it's it's all linked together. I know. <laughs> well, it's a small industry in Canada too. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, so your next choice? Are we in the top three now? Yeah, we're. This is number two. Two. Here we go. Oh yeah, yeah. Number two. Ladies and gentlemen, civil silver medalist. It's now time to bring William Shatner into the discussion. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to now, have a list without Shatner. Well, especially for a nerd like me and for an actor like me, too, there is a bit of the fact that um, I cannot deny that part of the reason I became an actor was Star Trek. I cannot deny that. It was part of it. There were other things, too, but there was something about William Shatner as Captain Kirk that was just, you can't escape, you can't escape it. It's just something about it. I can't, I really wish I could explain. I wouldn't say he's a great actor. (laughs) <laughs> uh, by any stretch of the imagination uh i think that he's an iconic actor in he, terms of his style he's definitely become if he wasn't already uh great at playing william shatner yes there, there's some actors who just play the same character in different situations and i don't think there's anything wrong with that and that's definitely his mold of acting very true and and it's just you know i mean like you can't deny he's committed yeah, I you mean, know? one one of my favorite roles that he did was Boston Legal. He played this character right. called Denny Crane, 
And it was just so large than life. So obviously William Shatner, you know, in fact, even Shatner taken to the max. And he just had so much fun playing it, obviously. And they even made loads of in-jokes. He goes, but I've been the captain in two shows now. You know, it's like he referred to Star Trek all the time in it. They they love breaking the fourth wall in that show. And I love love the idea that when they hired him, they were like, can you just be you, but more? That's what we're looking for. You, but more. And how often do do you think he gets the opposite directing note? (laughs) I would think very much all all the time. Could you be you, but less? I thought you were going to say the role you really remembered him from was Kingdom of the Spiders, which was a terrible 1980s or 70s movie that I watched religiously as a child for reasons that defy understanding. But um, But that might be in a classic which passed me by. Uh, I would say it passed everyone by for good reason. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I watched uh, T.J. Hooker. I watched everything William Shatner did. Everything. Columbo episodes. Uh, Yeah, I mean... The villain in Columbo. Yep, yep. He did a few episodes. (laughs) Yep. So, William Shatner. What more is there to say other than never never go away, sir? And, you know, I mean, like, it just... Everything about him on Star Trek was wonderful to me. Uh, up until Generations, but uh, we'll, we'll not talk about that. You didn't enjoy Generations? I, you know, I understand, but part of me wanted maybe a, a slightly different ending for him. Fair but, enough. Uh, but other than that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would also say just very quickly on the Shatner note, uh, something which I didn't bring up when we talked about it in the past, is I think it's worth checking out just the pilot for Bleep or Shit, my dad says. Um Cause right. it, I mean, it was a show which had no legs. It had nowhere to go. But the pilot, yeah. he is really funny. And it's kind of got... It, it, I've never before seen such a good kind of setup to a show which doesn't go anywhere. But uh, yeah. he's brilliant in it. It's another example of where they just go, yeah, just be yourself. Just go for it, Will. You know. Do, do, you, do you think the pilot is significantly different than, you know... The rest of the series? Yeah, yeah. Do you think it was different than what it became? I think it's more a point of that the pilot was really funny, but then it was just doing the same thing again. So there was... Right. And maybe they tried to do some other stuff, but it just didn't work. I don't know. It just... I, I laughed my ass off of the pilot. It just seemed like a really... Again, it was like the Twitter feed was really funny, and they probably filled it full of jokes just ripped large <laughs> from there. Right. But then, then you have to, in another episode, you have to give it some sort of plot which they didn't have really. And they tried right. to bring in these other supporting characters. But the only character that you really care about is him saying these misanthrop- misanthropic things. There yeah. isn't a show there. There's a pilot in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they should have realized that, but what the hell, you know? Yeah. So I can't, what yeah. Are you gonna do? yeah. So I can't say they really, I, I, mean, I don't know where the rest of it fell apart. Just, I just don't think there was a show in it. Just, there was right. a funny half hour. That was it. That's funny. Oh boy. Yeah, no, I, I can't, I mean, like, I think we all know we've got less time left with, with Shatner than, than, you know, than more time ahead. And, uh, that will be very, that will be a very sad day. I recognize he's probably a nightmare to work with. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost certainly. There's no doubt, but yeah, I don't care. I just, I just, so there's something about him that to this day, I'm like, oh, I still love William Shatner. Well, yeah, when, when you hear uh, George Takai talking about him and he talks about what nightmare he is, but George Takai, it's almost like he's pulling a bad tooth. He just can't stop it. He'll like continue yeah. to do stuff for William Shatner. And like, uh, then he invited apparently Will, William Shatner to his wedding 
and he right. didn't turn up. And then William Shatner made this big thing about how he wasn't invited when he right. was. And still then we, uh, uh, Bill asked him to do something else later and he still did it for him. So I think there must yeah. be something very magnetic about him, even if he's this huge pain in the ass to work for. Well, you know, here's the thing too. And I, anyway. here's the thing. When some of those cast members talk about like Bill would make every scene about him and every, he thought he was, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, but he was the star of the show, right? Like he, he, he legitimately, I mean, there's a reason why he still got along very well with, with Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly to some degree, because those were the stars of the show. It was kind of like everybody else on the show became like they weren't intended like they were there and they were the supporting cast and but i don't think that um anyone thought these are i equally iconic you know characters that was just an accident of them all being so good at their jobs and the characters being so interesting and the vision being so unique and so i think you know they have as as healthy an ego in their own way as William Shatner does. I mean that sure. that's part of. Do you know what I mean? There isn't an actor who doesn't have a healthy ego. But even so to with, some degree, yeah. and to some degree, I think if you're James Doohan or George Takai, and you kind of sit there and go, "Well, but I'm Sulu, and how can you take time away from Sulu?" It's like I understand. I understand where they're coming from, and actors should be generous to one another, absolutely. But I also think, like you know he was not unfounded in thinking, but this is my show, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know? but, but yeah, but at the same time, there were some stories of Leonard Nimoy complaining about his, the way he was. And also there's, um, it's like uh, George Kai tells this great story of how, like they'd have a setup where it was meant to be on him for one, you know, one scene for a couple of minutes. And then you'd see Shatner go off talking to the director and suddenly it would be reset to, to all be on him. And that does oh, sound yeah. like a, a little egocentric beyond the fact that you're the star of the show. It's like Absolutely. every camera has to be on you all the time, you know? Yeah, and that's why I'm saying that I, I have no doubt he was a nightmare. I'm <laughs> yeah. just saying that I, you know, I also think like he's the villain okay. now in the Star Trek universe. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I bet that's set for like, if you were a director who just, if you're Nicholas Meyer and you're coming in on Star Trek 2, there were probably some days where you were like, oh my God, all of them are driving me insane today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, if you take actors and, and, and tell them that they are, and I say this as an actor, right? So I'm including myself in this. If you take actors and say, hey, you're part of this iconic thing now, and now you're icons that are beloved by everyone, we will run with that nonsense, you know, as hard as we can. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I imagine that, you know, by the time Star Trek VI came along, I bet you it's, it probably... At, at times got to be a difficult you know difficult kettle of fish there to to wrangle you know yeah yeah certainly. still fun still fun but probably difficult <laughs> okay so in at number one now sir in at number one is is tommy douglas tommy douglas was the premier of uh saskatchewan uh in the 40s he helped found the first democratic socialist government in north america uh when he led what was known then known as the CCF and eventually became the NDP uh, to power. And, you know, he was a premier. He never held, I mean, he was an MP federally uh, at different times. He was the head of the NDP party when it formed, but the big thing, he won five straight majority victories as a, as a premier of Saskatchewan. But the big thing um, that he is known for is he's basically the father of universal health care in Canada, which is probably the, which as we've learned from America is, is evil and must be stopped. It must be stopped. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's Canada's greatest villain. Um, 
yeah, no, he he basically his his government did a ton of things. He um, he was the first government in North America to provide free hospital care for all citizens in his constituency. Um, he created legislation which allowed the unionization of public service of the public service, which is which makes sense because the public service has only one employer who can treat them however they want, uh, which is the government. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and he did all that by creating a budget surplus as well. So he, it's not like he cost a bunch of money. So uh, that success that he did in Saskatchewan uh, by first you know introducing some insurance reform and then progressively moving towards universal coverage, um, he was so successful in that in that province that it it forced the federal government to put federal dollars into similar programs across Canada, and we get to the point that we're at now where you know. All, every province has some form of universal coverage. Uh, and, you know, it, there's problems to our healthcare system, no doubt, but that's an, an immense achievement. So, Well, I, my argument always is that people like, the, the, the thing that people like to hammer a lot is the waiting lists when you've got a yeah. socialist mes- medicine. But yeah, it's a long queue that everyone's in, is yeah. always my answer to that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's amazing how, queue the, how long the queue can get if everyone's covered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone complains about the lines at Disneyland, uh, but when they get off the ride, they, you know, they're satisfied. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't stop, that doesn't stop people from wanting to go to Disneyland is the lines, you know? Um, and so I, I think the thing that makes him number one to me is the fact that he completely changed a central idea in Canada. We had an American-like system where, you know, people paid for healthcare and he was sort of instrumental uh, along with others, including, by the way, John Diefenbaker, um, who basically changed the conversation to, no, this is a right in the same way that education is a right on the elementary school and, and primary level, in the same way that national defense is a right. It's just something that everyone now in this country and in, in Canada uh, at this point in time in the modern age just accepts. It's not even a discussion. Uh, and... You know, to change the culture that significantly is is a pretty big achievement. He's yeah. he's dead. He's dead too, by the way. But at least that's not like a sad oh, part of the story. So Jeez, he, that was died, it was all going in such a positive way, Jeremy. Like you had to you he had to bring that in. And here's the other thing too about Tommy Douglas. You want to hear a fun fun fact? Okay, okay. Don, Tommy Douglas ties into another person on this list. That person right. is Donald Sutherland, because Donald Sutherland married Tommy Douglas's daughter shirley douglas who is cuckoo cuckoo nutty nutty got arrested for selling uh hand grenades to an undercover fbi agent thinking he was a member of the black panther party yeah she's uh she she was bananas and also is tommy douglas is Kiefer sutherland's grandfather wow yeah yeah, yeah that that's that is a, a quite the link so there you go that's that's yeah that's quite the link and and plus, like the the Sutherlands, are quite Republican, as I understand. Uh, is he? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, Keith, uh, I've seen him in an interview talking about his uh, political views being kind of right wing. Wow. Okay. I I don't know his dad is, but I thought his dad was as well. But I might be conflagrating those. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. You know, being a millionaire probably does make you more likely to become a bit more conservative, I would think. But yeah, you never know. Uh, there, there's some which, never... like Richard Branson, by all accounts, isn't too much that way. That's true. 
That's yeah. true. You're right. That was an unfair stereotype. Thanks, Squee. You, you nailed me on that one. That's no, it's cool. just nice to have some of them who aren't. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think you're right on mass. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So, yeah, so that's my list. It's a mix of the fun and, uh, you know, educational. So I hope some people didn't fall asleep and and learned a little bit. But, yeah, yeah, those are those are Canadians. No, you, you you nailed it. I I love that. It's it's kind of a nice kind of mix of pop culture and stuff that I didn't know about Canada. Like we had one where um Matt Lees, who's uh, does the tune for for uh Due South by Southeast, he uh, did quite a lot of wrestlers. So I learned oh, a, a boatload about re- uh, Canadian wrestlers during that show. That's great. So I never know. I, this is what I love about this format: is I never know what people are going to bring me. Yeah, well, hey, not a hockey player on my list, so we can save that for somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah, we'll a wait single for the... hockey player. I, I, we have had hockey players on lists, but uh, I've never had someone who's gone deep on the hockey player, so I'm waiting for that one now. It'll happen. It'll happen. <laughs> we'll love our hockey players. Definitely. In fact, I yeah. got told off because I had a novelty hockey shirt. <laughs> but there <laughs> we go. That's another story. That's funny. Okay, cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Jeremy. This was a lot of fun. You're welcome, Squee, anytime. And uh, I wish I had more to say about Due South, but if you ever need more Canadian help, I'm I'm always happy to offer it. Well, maybe in, in uh, so many episodes' time, we can have a, a second term from you. Oh, God. Okay. I'll get researching. <laughs> then you have to go real deep cuts. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> then you'll be like, it's all hockey players. Like, that's all I've got right. left. <laughs> or it'll be all happy. No one will die. Everyone has to say- still be alive. <laughs> Everyone will have to still be alive. I was going to say, this actually might force you to go back further in time. Then they're guaranteed all to be dead. I know, exactly. Right? We're going to, are my favorite 16th century Canadians. Here we go. <laughs> that would be some deep cuts. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much. So you have a fantastic day. And uh, for this week, uh, I've been Detective Squee. With me as always has been Dottie Baker. And joining us has been... Jeremy Raddick. Uh, and until next week, keep your compasses directed due south by southeast. Bye.